Yeah, it's the, the birthday girl. So, hey, I feel like I'm home, all right? And uh, I have a powerful testimony that uh, God has worked in my life, honestly, because of some people in my past who are praying for me, all right? So that's like my A message, but can I give y'all my heart message? Yeah. I'm going to give you my heart message. The A message is pretty powerful. Like half y'all in the room have heard the A message. So uh, the A message is this. In my family, I have a 200-year-old kettle pot. It was passed down in my family. And the reason why it's passed down is because it was used by the slaves in my family. They used it for cooking. They used it for washing clothes. But secretly, they used it for prayer. Because they're owned by a slave master who would beat them for any reason. And praying was one of them. Um, he didn't want them to pray because he felt like... Prayer would foster hope, and if they got hopeful, they would try to run away. So they would literally be beaten if they were caught praying. The irony is that they wanted their slaves to be Christians because they knew the Christian slaves made better workers, but they didn't want them to pray because they didn't want, to get, want them to get hopeful and try to run away. But my slave forefathers there in Lake Providence, Louisiana, listen, they prayed anyway. They would go into a barn late at night to make sure their prayer meeting wasn't seen. But to make sure it wasn't heard, they used that cast iron kettle pot in my family that's been passed down. So how they would use it, they would lay it flat on the cabin floor and then prop it up like three or four rocks. They would then prostrate themselves on the ground and put their lips in between the opening, between the ground and the kettle so that the kettle pot muffled their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story they passed down with the pot is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time. So they prayed for the freedom of their children and the next generation. <laughs> so one day freedom comes. There's this young teenage girl in our family. She decides to keep that pot and that story in our family. And she passed the pot and the story down to Harriet Lockett, who then passed it on to Nora Lockett, who then passed it on to her son, William Ford Sr., who then passed it on to William Ford Jr., who then gave it to me, William Ford III. So I've been taking that pot around the country to remind people, listen, yeah, that, that pot was using acoustic means to keep their prayers from being heard. But listen, Revelation 5 and 8 said so there's a bowl in heaven, <laughs> a golden bowl that catches our prayers, right? Every time you pray... <laughs> It's collected not in a, a Tupperware bowl or a plaster bowl, but a golden bowl. Because that's how precious your prayers are to God. There's not one wasted prayer in heaven. Listen, I don't want to preach on that, but, <laughs> but it's the truth. Listen, there's a prayer bowl over New York City. There's a prayer bowl over this state. There's a prayer bowl over this nation. God's looking for a new generation of resource to prayer bowls. And so it's the prayers of that godly remnant of black Christian slaves Listen, that raised up these white Christian revivalists and white abolitionists who knew that if any person was a slave was a Christian, they knew that person was their brother. They laid their lives down for each other. Many of those abolitionists and revivalists had their houses burned. They were also shot, killed, and lynched too because they chose to suffer with the people of God rather than compromise and weaken slavery. And so, uh, you know, we, I don't know, people, I just say this, and this, people talk a lot about critical race theory right now and, and it's a way that you can map out what racism has done in this nation. And I think it does has a place. It kind of goes too far sometimes with saying well, every, every white person is a, uh, a racist, every black person is a perpetual victim. But it does have this place in understanding what, happens, what has happened with race in our nation. But here, here's the other thing. There's critical grace theory, too. You can map out the healing hand of God through a remnant of people that God has used to bring breakthrough, to bring revival, to bring healing to our nation, too. All right. And it's not a theory. <laughs> Let me tell you why it's not a theory. So, um, so I was taking that pot around the country, but then I had this dream with Dr. King in it. 
where God dealt with me about my unforgiveness issues with the police in my area and the white people in my community where I experienced racism. And uh, basically, God dealt with me about my unforgiveness issues. So I forgave, and I shared that with a good friend, Lou Engle. He said, hey, bring that pot to, to, to the Lincoln Memorial on MLK Celebration Day. We'd have a prayer meeting that day. There was a white guy who had a dream about the man over the event, Lou Engle. He didn't know who he was. He winds up coming to that gathering because of his dream. I came there because of my dream. We became friends. We've been friends for 17 years, right? Praying for revival, contending for a culture of life, right? Well, fast forward. About uh, six years ago, that white friend of mine, he found out that the Civil War ended in his family's front yard. Right? So we thought, man, what a cool coincidence. I have this kettle pot where slaves pray for freedom. Yeah, this house where General Lee fought his last battle. We thought, cool coincidence. But then we stumbled on more research, and we learned that it was my friend Matt Lockett's family who owned my family where that kettle pot came from. Yep. I mean, the story is crazy. I mean, his family is also the family that invented the Confederate flag. So through the same family where the flag of rebellion was raised up, the flag of surrender went up in their front yard because of praying people. Isn't that powerful? But then he also had a revivalist and an abolitionist in his family, too, who fought against slavery. So it's like all of our families, right? We have these things called generational curses, generational blessings that represent these dominating themes of storylines. That's what God is shouting to America right now is this. What storyline do we want to be a part of? The healing or the hurt? The blessing or the curse? What storyline do we want to be a part of? Right? And the crazy thing is that we met at the Lincoln Memorial, both led by dreams, to the place where Dr. King said in his I have a dream speech, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will sit together at the table of brotherhood. Right? Isn't that crazy? So... Craziest thing about it is uh, some Hollywood producers who are amazing Christians, believers, been in Hollywood for 30 years, um, saw us in an interview, and long story short, after attorneys going back and forth, we finally have movie rights done for our book that we wrote called The Dream King. And it's going to be turned into a film. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to think, listen, it, it's not so much about... The story is not about my prayer life or Matt's prayer life. The story is about the prayer life of some people 200 years ago. The question for us in this generation is this. What will, should the Lord tarry? What will be said about our prayer lives 20 years from now or 200 years from now? So it's time for us to lay out our lives this, right now for the freedom of the next generation. Amen. My heart right now, y'all, so that's my story. I get I go to places, I can share this, this place is family. I love this house. I love the whites. I love, man, you have no idea just the affection I have for the fellowship here. So I feel like I'm here with family. So I want to share my heart message because if you cut me, you know, I, I go to different places and speak. Sometimes they introduce me as a historian because, you know, I know so much. You know, you start, you pray anywhere long enough. I've been doing this for 25, 30 years. You start praying, God just reveals stuff to you. So people think I'm a historian. And I speak in universities, you know. We're going to speak at Pepperdine University at the end of the year. Um, I, I go to other places and they think I'm, um, yeah, all, the, all these other things. But you cut me, I bleed revival. My heart is to see a massive awakening hit this nation. I'm just a lovesick worshiper just like the rest of y'all. And God has just revealed some stuff to me. Can I share with you what he's revealed to me right now for what he wants to do in this house 
Turn with me in your Bibles. Or turn on your Bibles. <laughs> Another generation I'm talking to. Go to Exodus. Exodus 30. We're going to jump around a little bit. Exodus 30, verse 22. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tuck also for yourself the finest spices of flowing myrrh, 500 shekels of fragrant cinnamon, half as much, 250, and a fragrant and a, a fragrant cane, 250, and of acacia, 500, according to the shekel of the sanctuary and of the olive of hand. You shall make of these a holy anointing oil, a perfume mixture, the work of a apothecary. That's what some translations say. The work of a perfumer. That's what mine says. It shall be a holy anointing oil. What is it? You shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of testimony and the table and the utensils and the lampstand and utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering and all these utensils, the laver and the stand. You'll also consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them shall be holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons with the same thing. So everything that's set apart unto intimacy with the Lord gets to have perfume. This anointing oil. I say it's perfume because it's made by a perfumer, right? All right. Now flip over with me to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 44. Starting at verse 10. But the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols, shall bear the punishment for their iniquity. Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the house and ministering in the house. They shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people. Everybody say for the people. And they shall stand before them to minister to them. <laughs> because they minister to them before their idols. I'm at uh, Ezekiel 44, verse 12 now. Because they ministered before them, before their idols, and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel. Therefore, I have sworn against them, declares the Lord, that they shall bear their punishment for their iniquity. Isn't that a trip? Listen, they, these folks stayed in the ministry as their judgment. Their punishment was the ministry. They had to do ministry without intimacy with God. That was their punishment. Skip down further. He says, but the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary, when the sons of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer the fat and the blood, declares the Lord. They shall enter my sanctuary. They shall come near to my table to minister to me and keep my charge. It shall be that when they enter the gates of the inner court, that they shall be clothed with linen garments, and wool shall not be on them while they are ministering in the gates of the inner court and in the house. Linen turbans shall be on their heads, and linen undergarments shall be in their loins. They shall not gird themselves with anything that shall make them sweat. Today, I want to talk to Life Center about the difference between the anointing and the glory. 
because that's the realm that God wants to take this house into. Let's pray. Jesus, we absolutely love you. God, we so thank you for your presence in this house. We thank you for what you want to do. And with all that we've gone through, Lord, in this threshing floor season that we've been through, Lord, where all the props are gone, and social distancing, revealing the social distance in our hearts, our dependence on other things, even other people, even the good things, Lord, you removed them all so we could come back to our foundation, and that's you. But God, we thank you that it's in these times, the times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord, and you show us the real reason for why you deposited what you deposited on our lives. Forgive us for our false finish lines <laughs> and hyping every little trickle into something we call revival when, Lord, it was just a preparation for a massive outpouring. So, God, we ask you, give us the grace to respond to your voice in this thing. In Jesus' name, all God's people say, amen and amen. So, we're at a, we're at a time right now. Where you, have you noticed left and right, you see people who have fallen away from the faith, especially in these troubling times? People have been doing one of two things. I've seen the, the, the hunger level in churches go to a whole other level all over the country. Um, I've seen that, experienced that here in worship today. It was so powerful. But then also, too, just the turmoil. With that's going on in people's hearts, people falling away from the faith. Can I give you like four reasons why we see that happening? One is we have people who have basically taken on a formulaic understanding of what it is to follow Christ, right? First one is the life over God concept, life over God. Like, I don't need God, I just need a good set of principles to live by, right? That's what the atheist does, right? I don't need God. I just need a good set of principles to live by. I just need a Santa Claus or something like that in my life, you know, where I can expect good things. But then you have the divine atheist in the church, right, who worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. <laughs> we need the Bible, but we need the Holy Spirit to help us illuminate and understand that Bible, all right? And so when you try to live out just by just a bunch of good principles, what happens? So at some point in time, those principles will fail you when your formula breaks down and you need to hear the Holy Spirit on how to respond to different things, then when that happens, people get disillusioned. They get disillusioned, setbacks happen, and they fall away from the faith. The other one is life under God. Life under God, that's the person who wants to live out their lives in sinless perfection and try to legalistically live by a set of rules, and they think, okay, if it's like that person that's living in some remote village that worships the rain god. And as long as they do the libation right and as long as they do the dance right or whatever, you know, when the rain comes, it's like, oh, it's because we did this right. But when it doesn't happen, oh, I got I to gotta work on my formula again. Well, the Christian that does that does the same thing. <laughs> they have these set of rules they live by, living in fear, and that they think if they get one thing right or one thing wrong, everything messes up. Let me give an example of it. There was a... A football player, a few years back, Christian, used to post all the time on Twitter. And um, one day he, he's playing in a playoff game, and he's there in the end zone, easy catch, should have caught the ball, and it just goes right through his hands, and they lose the game. He gets on Twitter, 
and he blasts God. <laughs> he actually gets on Twitter and he says, God, this is how you treat me after I worship you 24-7? Like Jesus is the one with the butterfingers. No, it wasn't Jesus who dropped the ball, bro. It was, it was you. And he got disillusioned. Thankfully, he didn't, he didn't leave the faith. But it's a good example of what it looks like when you think that, okay, if I do everything exactly right, then things are going to. That's not how it works all the time. Then the other one is life for God, the life for God person. That's the person who uh, they think, you know what? If I just take up this cause, God's going to like me more. If I build that water well in Africa, right? or if I start doing this thing where you're focusing on ending sex trafficking, or I'm going to focus on this thing on uh, ending abortion, or whatever. I'm going to take up these causes, and that's going to make them like me more. God, I already love you, <laughs> right? But what happens is sometimes we put the cause in front of Christ. And then when the girl that you've been helping with sex trafficking goes back to the pimp, and the person you've been trying to counsel against the abortion has it anyway, or whatever, people get disillusioned, and I've seen people walk away from the faith. Right? Those are some of the ugly ones, but let me tell you what the worst one is. The life from God mentality. The life from God mentality is the consumer mentality that's in the church right now. Life from God. In other words, God's my genie in the bottle, and if I do things right, then he's going to do this stuff for me. So give an example of what I'm talking about, um, the consumer mentality. Let's say I was a potato farmer. Any potatoes that I had that I raised and I brought to the kitchen table, and uh, we cooked in the morning, make hash browns with. Those have what? An intrinsic value because those are connected to the stories that I have about our family and what we do. But any surplus potatoes that I can sell, those now serve a utilitarian purpose because it's all about what they can do for me, right? They have no meaning outside of me being able to trade it for more vegetables or trade it for money, right? Well, that's what kind of happens when when you have a consumer mentality, it's not about the inherent value of something. It's about what something or someone can do for you, right? So I'll give an example I'm talking about. There's this village where uh, over in Cambodia where this one gentleman was going to, uh, going to this orphanage. The orphanage was set up there for children that were abandoned by their parents because of an AIDS epidemic that broke out in the village. Right? The AIDS epidemic broke out because there were Fortune 500 firms that were there in the area who uh, had these huge, huge companies, but they shut them down overnight. And the reason why is because another rogue government came along and said, hey, we'll give you a better, better, labor, labor, give you a better labor contract than Cambodia if you start building your wares here. So the, the H&Ms of the world and the... Um, the Walmarts of the world shut down their factories overnight and went to this other company, with the, to this other country to build their stuff. So what happened to the young women who worked in that area? Well, they became susceptible to what? A certain way of life, which was suddenly gone. Who came in to fill the vacuum? People who were working in, um, in, the, in the lending, in, lending industry, really the sex trafficking industry. And when they couldn't pay back their loans, they gave them other ways to pay it back. 
farmers came in to sell their wares, and when they came in to sell their wares, they would come in to connect and hook up with some of the prostitutes in the area, and an AIDS epidemic broke out in that village. And so the orphanage was set up in that place because so many of the parents had died from the AIDS epidemic, and kids had nowhere else to live, right? So for the Fortune 500 firms, those people, they served a utilitarian purpose. They cared less about the intrinsic value of who, what the, who, the, who those women were, what they represented. You get what I'm saying? They cared less about that. They cared less about <coughs> uh, what kind of vacuum was being created as they left that area. Right? And then when we're shopping, we're not thinking about that. We're just, you know, going through the clothes rack. We're not thinking about where these things are made from. We're just thinking, oh, does this look good with that, that gift? That make, they make a good birthday gift for my wife or whatever. Does this go with these shoes or whatever? We're just thinking about what? The utility of it. We're just thinking about what this can do for me. And what happens is when you care more about what something can do for you, you care less about the backstory. That's what we do when we commodify God. When we have a consumer mentality in our relationship with God, we care less about the backstory. We care more about what he can do for us instead of who he is and what he's already done. What it looks like is something like this. You know that story about you dying on the cross and rising from the dead? That's, that's good stuff. But do you have something like for this problem with my hip? Um, I have some things I need to work on my marriage. you have some principles I can use to, to work on that? Or do you? You do, work, do you have anything for businesses or whatever can help me with this entrepreneur thing I'm trying to work on? In other words, when you get into a consumer mindset, you care less about what God, who God is. You care more about what he can do for you. God's not looking for somebody to be a backseat date kind of lover. He's looking for somebody who says, I'm in this for good, for bad, for rich, or for poor. I don't care what it looks like. I'm in this not because of what you can do for me. I just want you. Right? And that's how it's with us, right? So those are those four ways, but the deal is this. It's not about life over God, life under God, life for God, life from God. It's about life with God. God wants somebody to be with him. Right? And so one of the reasons that I think we've kind of gotten to this kind of consumer mentality in the church is because we've forgotten what the anointing is all about. We thought the anointing was about us. It's not. Anointing is about, it's not about us. It's about him. Right? And so um, we see it first and foremost in the Bible. There's what? It's what? Perfume. And the beautiful thing about anointing, what it represents, of course, is that, that anointing oil represents the presence of the Holy Spirit that comes on our lives, that takes our gifts, our talents, our abilities to a whole nother level. But the focus first was to minister to the Lord, <laughs> then to people, right? The problem in the church is that we've taken the anointing and the talents and the abilities and the skills that he's given us, and we focus more on pleasing people instead of ministering to the Lord. <laughs> Because here's the deal. When you please God, guess what? You're going to serve people. But when you focus on pleasing people, at some point, you're going to stop serving God. So it represents, first and foremost, 
the presence of the Lord coming over your life, being anointed and set apart for this one thing. And what happens is the supernatural kicks into your ability. And now it's like going from a handsaw to a buzzsaw when it comes to ministry, right? The anointing comes on and makes preaching powerful, make teaching more easy, all, all of that. Prophetic goes to a whole other level when the anointing is on it. But it's first and foremost about us ministering to the Lord first. Um, give an example of what I'm talking about because it's first and foremost. You saw there, Exodus 30, it was perfume. Set apart perfume. And anybody else who wore that perfume was to be cut off from Israel if they wore it. So this was a set apart fragrance only for people and things that were set apart into intimacy with the Lord, first and foremost. So I thought, man, God, that's, that's pretty extreme as an exclusive fragrance, right? And so I was... About that time, you know how God sets things up. I was look, turn, you know, flipping through the TV while I was studying, and then all up comes this thing, Lifestyles of the Rich or Famous. Remember Robin Leach, that show from back in the day? Young people, that's kind of, it was kind of like Yo MTV careers with a British accent. That's what it was like, right? <laughs> Robin Leach, he comes on. He has this show, and he does this show talking about this man who is like a gazillionaire or something. And he, he marries, this, marries this woman, and he decides that he's going to have a perfume fragrance just for them. And so he buys a perfume factory from some company, buys it, and then he hires Yves Saint Laurent to, des to design a fragrance. Then he buys the rights from it, from Yves Saint Laurent, so that nobody else can wear the same fragrance. And only two people on the planet wear that same fragrance, he and his wife. And the whole factory makes perfume just for them. At first, I thought, man, what a waste. <laughs> Good, now you're going to take that money, gave it to the poor. I'm thinking like the disciples, right? <laughs> and the Lord said to me, no, 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 you don't understand. Before that woman ever enters the room, if the wind is blowing the right way, shoo, he knows that his beloved has come on the scene. Wow. Right? It's the same way for us with the anointing. We're, under the anointing, we're aroma of life to those who are living, aroma of death to those who are perishing. When a, a person who's under the anointing walks into the room, guess what? Change comes into the atmosphere, right? There are angels, there are demons in this room. We bind the demons in Jesus' name, but there are angels here too. <laughs> There's a whole lot going on in the unseen realm. And guess what? The angels are looking at us going, oh, my God, is that the Lord? No, that's, that's one of his. Let's stick around and see what God wants to do with their prayers. The demons, they come in, they hear, they smell the anointing that's on us. They go, oh, my God, are there any pigs around? They start planning their exit strategies because of the anointing on your life. Because we're a Roman of life to those who are limited, a Roman of death to those who are perishing. Right? So let's say that woman, she's in a room, and she decides to, the husband says, hey, will you go get me a cup of coffee? As she's walking across the room, <sighs> That fragrance is filling the room. She's walking across. She's distracting everybody with her fragrance, right? And they, but then when she gets the coffee, she, she's going right back over to the object of her affection, under the anointing that's on your life. That's what you're called to do. As you go out to please the Lord and as you serve him, you're going to distract people into righteousness, and you're going to lead people right back over to the object of your affection. That's what we're called to do under the anointing. Right? But then sometimes, what, what, what if that husband says, hey, will you go get some coffee for him or for her? She's walking across the room. She's doing it to please her husband. But as she's pleasing her husband, she's ministering to other people. And then when they ask, oh, where, where did this coffee come from? Then she'll lead people right back over to the object of her affection. That's how we're called to minister under the anointing.
That makes sense. So when we please God, guess what? We're going to serve people. But when we get it twisted and think this whole thing is about us, <laughs> so you, you can either be an anointed influencer or a perfume seductress. You can either be an anointed influencer that leads people to the Lord, or you can be a seductive perfume person that leads people to yourself and start trying to build your own kingdom. And when you seek to please people, sooner or later, you will stop serving God. <laughs> All right? So that's, that's kind of what that looks like under the anointing. And so the thing gets scary. So you look at Ezekiel 44, you see what's playing out there. Turn there with me real quick. Ezekiel 44. We were there two seconds ago, but... Um, So these priests in verse 10 were the ones who were, the people had been led astray into idolatry and the, the priests at the time, they were focused so much on people pleasing <laughs> that they let the, let the people go along with it. So the Lord says, okay, here's what's, what's going to happen. But the Levites, verse 10, who went far from me when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols, shall bear the punishment for their iniquity, yet shall they, they shall be ministers in my sanctuary Having oversight at the gates in the house and ministering in the house, they should slaughter the bird offering and the sacrifice for the people. You know what he means when he says for the people? It means that they have to earn the approval and the acceptance of the people. Of the, for the people. For the people. Meaning they have to jump through hoops. They have to focus on their opinions. They have to make sure they say the right thing on Facebook. Every five minutes, they got to check on their Twitter, repost, their likes, their hearts. Right? But later on, it says what? Verse 15. But the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary, when the sons of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer the fat and the blood, declares the Lord. Linen turbans, verse 18, shall be on their heads and undergarments. They shall not gird themselves with anything that shall make them sweat. Right? In other words, they didn't minister for the Lord. It said they got to minister to them. Not for them, but to them. In other words, they already have his approval. They already have his acceptance. They don't have to jump through hoops for God. Do you know that salvation is a gift? <laughs> And if you earn it, it wouldn't be a gift. And there are people still trying to jump through hoops to please God when they already have his approval and acceptance. He's not like our earthly fathers in any shape, form, or fashion. And so as a minister, when you come into your, your place in the kingdom and you have this orphan spirit in your life, where you think you have to perform for people to love you and like you or to earn acceptance, it doesn't work like that, especially as, as, as a minister Unto the Lord. So in other words, you had these two group of ministers, right? One doing it for the people and jumping through hoops. Another group that's ministering to the Lord. And here's the thing that's interesting about this, y'all. They both were anointed. Both groups were anointed because you had to be anointed to minister. The only thing that differentiated one from the other that people, well, people could tell who was, who was legit and who wasn't, one group was sweating, the other one wasn't. 
Both of them smelled anointed. The only difference was one was sweating out on Facebook. One was sweating it out, wondering what people were thinking about them. The other one was sweating it out, and their judgment was ministry without intimacy. That's what we have. So you wonder why we see this leader fall away, that leader fall away. Y'all had some things happen here. I had some things happen in Texas, friends around me, whatever. It's because at some point we focus more on pleasing people. And our Facebook followings or whatever. And sooner or later we stop serving the Lord. So... One of the reasons why I think God allowed all this to happen right now, with COVID, quarantines and everything, it was time to recalibrate our hearts. To get back what the real thing is, what the main thing is in this season and in this time. All right? So what does it look like to minister to the Lord under the anointing? You know, to me, the best example for it, go to Mark. Go to Mark. 14th chapter. This is Mary, right? Mary, Mark 14, 3. Formerly the prostitute, right? Jesus cast seven demons out of her. That Mary, she comes. She's a wild. He was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Reclining at the table, there came in a woman with an alabaster vial of costly perfume, nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were diligently remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? <laughs> for this person, th this perfume might have been sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. In other words, we could have used that. And they were scolding her, and Jesus says, let her alone. Why do you bother her? What she has done to me is a good thing. Another translation says, Amplified says like this, what she has done to me is a good and beautiful thing. So what's going on in this whole thing? This Mary, right, has 300 denarii worth of what? Costly perfume. Scholars say this was like a whole year's wages worth of perfume. So the average American makes $50,000 a year. Can you imagine $50,000 worth of perfume? Right? I smelled this fragrance out when I was working in banking. I was working as a banker. And this lady walked by me. I was like, Whoosh. I said, ma'am, I'm not flirting. I promise. But what are you wearing? I found out what that fragrance was. And I wasn't making a lot of money at that time, but I paid $300 for that for that perfume. Because <laughs> I was like, that's, that's my de Havilland. <laughs> right? If I could have bought the factory, I would have shut it down and just. <laughs> because I was like, that. Took my little commission check and I bought, I bought that fragrance for her. But can you imagine $50,000 worth of perfume? <laughs> Whole year's wages. So Jesus is at this house. And the first thing that someone would do when someone came in to a home, one, they would anoint the nape of their neck with anointing oil, with olive oil, and then they also would wash their feet. This is Simon the leper's house. Simon the leper, some scholars say he was formerly one of the Pharisees, but he's now been healed by the Lord, healed of his leprosy. 
So he's in between two worlds, and he's like trying to feel out, how do I introduce these Pharisees that I used to hang out with who hated Jesus to Jesus, but how do I do that and not compromise, you know, my... So it was basically like this political old boys kind of meeting, <laughs> you know, and he didn't watch Jesus because I don't know what, you know, what people are going to think about me if I do that. And he's trying to work his way around all this stuff. In other words, Jesus was being used, not adored. Mary was walking by. Can you imagine she's probably walking by and sees this scene? She's been used most of her life, Right? You ever thought about why would a why would a prostitute have fifty thousand dollars worth of perfume? She had basically, she basically had to trick herself and give herself another incentive to keep doing what she doing what she was doing because she felt so bad about what she was doing. She had to give herself another incentive. Give me an example of what I'm talking about. I remember thirty some odd years ago when I was in college and I went to a strip club with some friends of mine. It was one of the most humiliating times I ever had while I was there because they paid for the, one of the young ladies to come over to our table, and they began talking to her. My friends began talking to her. But she began responding with answers that were related nothing to what we were talking about or, or anything. Then I realized, oh, my God, she's not here. I mean, she's right here, but she's not here mentally. She has to put herself in a totally different place to be in this room. She can't even be in this moment because she feels so bad about what she's doing. She has to set up a total, another set of, set, set of rewards to trick herself to be in this moment. She's not here. You're talking about a buzzkill. That, that was my last time in one of those places. I was like, man, that's somebody's daughter. And it, it, it messed with me. Well, that's what it was for Mary. Mary, every single illicit encounter that she had with a man, she was thinking, you know what? One day, it's all going to be worth it. And I'm going to meet a man that's going to make all this worth it one day. So she's thinking about all this money she saved up to buy this perfume for the one man that's going to make it worth it all. Being used and used and used over again. But she walks by this room and she sees Jesus being used in some political game or whatever. And game recognizes game, right? She looks and then she goes, I, the way I picture she, she sees what's happening. She's that he's not being honored. She's that he's not being adored. And she runs back to her place and she comes back with that $50,000 worth of perfume. Because she thought, I'm never, ever going to meet another man that's ever going to mean this much to me. The deliverance that she went through, all the things she had gone through, and how Jesus valued her and didn't use her. She rushes into that room and breaks it at his feet and pours it over his head. Fills the whole house because that's what happens. 
with the anointing. It changes the atmosphere. But what did the disciples say? His followers, where were those followers? What did they say? We could have used that. Listen. Some people are meant to be adored and not used. God is one of them. He's meant to be adored and not used. People are meant to be adored and not used. Do we have to take every worship song and shrink wrap it and put it out on iTunes? Some things are meant to be adored and not used. You know why we don't value prophetic artwork in the church and we don't see a lot of it? Because we don't see, we, you know, a lot of pastors are saying, man, well, you know, that'd be cool, but can we take that and sell it? Can we just have some things in the church that we just have an intrinsic, inherent value for it? Come on. There are things that I, there are encounters I've had with the Lord that are not in anybody's book because lovers keep secrets. Yeah. Not everything is meant to be used. But, you know, it goes back to your worship. You know, when you see that person that's there and they're crying out before God at the altar and they're pouring out their heart and the tears are flowing and other folks come by and say, ah, you know, it, it doesn't take all that. You know what God says to them? Leave them alone. They're not doing it for you. They're doing it unto me. And what they're doing to me is a good and beautiful thing. Worship leaders are meant to be adored and not used. Some of them would care more about their talent than what's going on in their heart. And we wonder why some of them were falling away from the faith. They got wrapped up in the formulas along the way, got used along the way. Thank God for good parents, spiritual parents like Bill and Tammy. But the deal is, <laughs> God is going to deal with that orphan spirit and that slave mentality that's been in the church, that consumer mentality. He's judging it. Because the deal is this. It's not about the anointing. The anointing is great. It's powerful. But that's not what brings revival. The thing that brings revival is the glory realm. There's a whole nother realm, y'all. And it's the realm of glory. And it's when God shows up and he does all the work. But you won't get that unless you minister to him. I can't tell you when it's going to happen. I can't even tell you how it happens. But at some point at some time, the glory realm comes into a room. Sometimes it comes over a region and it just hovers and lingers. And it's not even about the signs and the wonders they will break out. The people who, are, who have been in those atmospheres and been in those environments two or three years, five years, however long it lasts, they tell you that the thing that they were most enamored with was the presence. The weighty presence of the Lord. Two words for glory, Hebrew, more, probably more than that, but one is Shekinah, but the other one is Kabod, weighty presence. And when the weighty presence shows up, the priest can't stand to the minister. <laughs> they don't need to minister. 
Because God comes into the room and he does all the work. I know that's a Sunday morning message and it's a little different, but can I just tell you a couple of my, my glory stories? I'm bringing this to the close. I remember, I remember some time ago, I was at a, at a, it was a conference setting, and, you know, they had the, the workshops going on, and they had the walled-off partitions, you know. On one side, we had this well-known speaker who was a good man, you know. And everybody was saving seats to be in his rooms, like 200 seats, friends saving seats. You know how we do, we put the backpacks and, and all that stuff there, and saving this for somebody. And the other side of the room, there was this other guy. His name was Tommy Tenney. We didn't know who he was. Something about a pulpit that split or something like that. We didn't, nobody knew who he was. He had no books or anything. But we're in this room with the well-known speaker and the people who couldn't fit in the room with this guy had to go into that guy's room, the Tommy Tenney room. So it's like 1994, 95. All of a sudden, while we're there in this guy's room, the walled-off partition begins to shake. <laughs> and we're like, what is going on? And, uh, and then we hear something like an airplane and a freight train trying to take off at the same time. A mighty rushing wind was going on in the room next to us. And so our speaker, he just kind of made a joke the first time. He said, oh, maybe we should just stop doing what we're doing and go next door. Then finally he said, no, let's stop doing what we're doing. <laughs> Everybody head next door. <laughs> we go next door, y'all, bodies were everywhere. <laughs> Nobody really laid hands on anybody. Spirit of travail hit the room. It's the first time I've seen it. Where weeping, crying, and travail hit in such a powerful way. And you could hear a wind blowing in the room. And uh, the presence of the Lord. We saw meetings like that happen, though, a lot during those days, though. Bill and Tamar were in some meetings like that. You would see it, Pensacola, the Brownsville Revival. That lasted for three years. Things like that happened. But the guy who was speaking that day, his name was Tommy Tenney. He was kind of well-known because of what happened to it happened at a church. He didn't preach that day at the church. He just wrote about what happened at the church. I got a chance to preach in that church not too long ago, Richard Hurst Church. And uh, <laughs> it was so powerful. But here's what happened. Tommy Tenney came there to preach, and the presence of the Lord was so thick, the worship team couldn't function. Somebody just put their foot on the foot pedal and kept it on sustain. <laughs> the worship team was crying so hard, they couldn't, they couldn't function. It's the first early morning service for the church. And the, the pastor said, Tommy, are you ready to go and take over the service? And, and he said, sir, honestly, I'm too afraid to even go up to your pulpit. And the pastor said, well, I think I have something. So he, he said, I'll just start there and see what happens. So he goes up to his pulpit and he starts reading Second Chronicles 7.14. He said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. And he stopped there and he said, 
Church, that's what we've done, see. For too long, we've sought God's hand for what he can do for us. But now he wants us to seek his face in intimacy. When he said that, all of a sudden, a lightning bolt came into the church. The pulpit split in half. Half, big, huge, plexiglass pulpit. Half of it went this way. The other half went that way. The pastor flew back this way. He stayed out for three hours. <laughs> People began running to the altar. We need unity in the body of the Christ, but you know what we need more than that? We need the fear of the Lord. People began running to the front, repenting of their sins, wanting to get saved. That's what happened in the church. You know what happened on the outside of the church in the parking lot? The presence of the Lord was so thick that in, on the parking lot, as soon as people, were, they thought they were coming early for the, first, for the second service, but the first service was still going on. When they hit the parking lot, they began crying so much because the glory of the Lord was settled on the property. They were just throwing their cars in the haphazard park. So cars were just parked sideways <laughs> in parking spaces. In the foyer, people were just out, overwhelmed by the presence. And Tommy Tanney said he gave the shortest altar call he ever gave in his life. He walked up to the pulpit and he said, well, if you're not right, not right with God, now would be a really good time <laughs> to get right with God. <laughs> they stayed in what was called protracted meetings for two years. In other words, they had church every day for two years. Blind eyes were being opened. Deaf ears were being healed. Not just inside the church, but on the outside, too. The presence of the Lord would be so thick on them. It was so th Y'all remember, it, the presence of the Lord would be so thick on us in those time periods. We would go to grocery stores, and people would start crying around us. Tap us on the shoulder and say, I don't know what's going on with me, but I felt like God told me to ask you, what, what is this? We would explain the gospel to them, and they'd get saved in grocery stores. People would manifest demons as we were out in grocery stores or whatever, and we would cast out demons in grocery stores. It's coming back, y'all. It's happening. It happened to the Haplin the other day. She was in Ulta Beauty. Ulta Beauty with her, with her signed T-shirt on. Young man came up to her, tried to help her with her makeup. He said, oh, your T-shirt says signs on it. Does that have something to do with like a, that movie, Signs with the Extraterrestrials or whatever? And she said, no, it has something to do with Isaiah 818. Your life is called to be a sign that points people to Jesus Christ. He started weeping immediately. She starts weeping and shaking, and he says, I'm not ready for this. And he walked away <laughs> to go help somebody else. Then he came back to her. She said, well, Tell me what you said again. She said, see like that sign out there? That sign is point telling people what direction they're supposed to go in. Your life is called to be a sign that points people to Jesus too. He starts crying all over again. His coworkers are looking like, what is going on with him? He's like, can you, will you please hug me? She, yeah, she hugs him and shares the gospel while he's crying. That's what's happening right now. But we won't get there by just focusing on ourselves and the anointing.
we will get there by focusing on the glory realm, ministering to him. And then the presence begins. He shows up. So uh, can you imagine? What if we're just on the other side of a revival? All we have to do is just open the door and step into what he wants to do in this season. A year or so after that, my friend, a friend of mine actually sent me the cassette of that message that day that Tommy Tina gave. So powerful. But at the end, you could actually hear where the wind brush, br breaks into the room and travail hits these people, <laughs> right? I used to play it for my students at Christ for the Nations because they, they never heard the spirit of travail or experienced anything like that. I had it on cassette for years, for you uh, millennials and younger. A cassette is about this big, <laughs> and it has two holes in it, and you take a pencil and... <laughs> but a friend of mine took it and digitized it, and I keep it on my phone. I still listen to the message. I hadn't heard, I'm starting to hear that sound starting to come back a little bit. Do y'all want to hear what I heard on the other side of the room? I'll play it for you just so you can hear it. Now, mind you, this is just one or two. You know, it's 1990s. The audio equipment is not the best. But this is what I heard on the other side of the room. The person next to you, unless you know God will come in the midst. <laughs> I can't hardly talk. I'm just here to tell this generation, listen, there's a whole nother realm. There's something beyond E minor. There's something beyond smoke machines. I'm for anything that's going to remind me of what heaven looks like. But I'm just saying, let's not settle for false finish lines. God wants to release his glory. And I believe he wants to do it here. So, Father, we come before you right now. Just however you want to posture yourself. I just want to pray. I just want to pray, God. I just want to come before you. And I just want to ask first for forgiveness, God. God, would you forgive us? Forgive us for 
playing games in your presence. <laughs> God, forgive us for using the anointing to build our own kingdoms. <laughs> forgive us for how we use the anointing <laughs> to please people and not you. Forgive us in the church, Lord, where we focus more on our Facebook followings, our Twitter followings. We're following the crowd, but we're not following the cloud. God, something's got to change. We love you and we thank you for the anointing, but that still, it still smells like man. Something's got to come into the church that doesn't have the smell of man on it. So, God, we ask you, forgive us even for, Lord, the way we've used people, we've used talent, and we've cared more about what people can do instead of who they are. We have worship leaders that have walked away from the faith. We have pastors and leaders that have walked away from the faith because we care more about their performance and their talents instead of their intimate relationship with you. God, forgive us. People are meant to be adored and not used. God, forgive us why we use one another. But more than anything, God, forgive us for how we've used you. Forgive us how we've used the anointing. Forgive us how we've pimped your presence. Forgive us how we shrink wrap everything to try to sell it for this or for that. God, forgive us for what we've done. God, you said, let the priest, the Lord ministers, weep between the porch and the altar. God, we pray for a brokenness to come over the church in this hour where the priests, your ministers, will weep between the porch and the altar and put our brokenness on display that we can show the world how to repent, that we can show the world how do we need. We all need a closer relationship with you. God, this thing is not some formula. Break the religious spirit off of your church in this hour. Would you deliver us from this consumer mentality? It's, you know, Matthew 21, Jesus, he comes into the temple and he sees the ones with the money changers tables and everything. And he grabs a whip and he starts cracking the whip. And he says, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. But then, Lord, you got to the place where they were selling the doves and you became the whip. And you turned over those tables because does represent your presence. And you're tired of people merchandising your presence. You're tired of people using. God, we become such consumer users. God, forgive us. But as soon as you said, my house should be called a house of prayer, all of a sudden the blind, the halt, and the lame, they ran to you. But the ones who wanted the religious system were running away from you. God, there's two crowds running opposite directions right now. The ones who want the system are going away from your manifest presence. But the ones who want your presence are running to you. So, God, we come to you in this hour. We ask you. I just want to be part of that right crowd, God. I don't want the religious system. I want your presence, God. 
and whatever it takes to bring it. Lord, we use our anointing to minister to you. So God, break in. Break in. Just a few blocks away from here, there's a little street called Fulton Street. A man named Jeremiah Lanfear started with six people, a prayer meeting. And in weeks, it birthed 5,000 people coming for noonday prayer. Spread to millions all around the country just because somebody said, I want to minister to you. God, out of New York, once again, would you raise up those who are minister to you? Would you raise up those who are minister to you in this hour? Because you're meant to be adored and not used, God. Break our hearts for the things that break your heart in this season. It's not about who's in the White House. So many people focusing on who's coming back. The Republicans coming back. The Democrats coming back. Oh, Jesus, you're coming back. Shift our focus, God. Break this political thing off your church. It's not about who we vote for. It's about who we live for. Left wing, white wing, the whole bird is sick. It's not about the donkey or the elephant. It's about the Lamb of God who's above the throne. (laughs) Prepare this house, Life Center, for the seasons of awakening that are upon it. Thank you for the summer of revival that's going to visit this house. Thank you for the summer of glory. Thank you for the summer of visit. going to go from visitation to habitation in this place. You're going to see things that you've never seen before. You're going to see a move of God like you've never seen before. God, we thank you for the hunger level in this house going to a whole nother level. So that 20 years from now, should you tarry? 100 years from now, should you tarry? They'll be talking about what started at Life Center. They'll be talking about what happened in New York City once again. They'll be making movies and documentaries about what you started through this place because some people decided to pray. In the name of Jesus. Jesus' name.